You're listening to The Open Podcasts. Whatever was going to happen, I was prepared to take it fully on the chin, good or bad. Um, so when I woke up Sunday morning, I looked out the window and I saw what the weather was like and I said, this is going to be a good day today. And the rest is history. The recipe for success in the game of golf has many ingredients. Hard work, dedication, mental excellence and talent are chief among them. But some players are ready to work as hard, if not harder, than others. And some of these players, just a handful throughout history, have been given the talent to achieve their wildest dreams. Whether it's Ballesteros, Nicholas, Faldo or Woods, the game's greatest players have mixed hard work with a natural talent that is beyond the comprehension of most. Greg Norman, the two-time Open champion, is perhaps near the very top of that list. A remarkable golfer who spent over six cumulative years as world number one, Norman began playing golf at the age of 15. By the age of 21, he was a European Tour winner and was competing in his first Open Championship. Not long after, he would secure his legacy by claiming the fabled Claret Jug. At this moment, we mustn't speak too soon, but at this moment, he's getting a little bit back for all the times he's had the dirty dunder head. In the golfing sense, I hasten to add. Yes, well done. He's done it at last. Greg Norman, 69. And great stuff. The champion for 1986. This is Tales of the Open. This is the story of Greg Norman. Born in 1955 in Queensland, Norman grew up around the Great Barrier Reef and developed a love for nature and the outdoors. Well, first of all, I was born in a little mining town called Mount Isa, ISA, in the northwestern part of Queensland. Uh, a big mining town. Um, I was born in, on February the 10th, 1955, and I, my father was uh, worked for Mount Isa Mines, a big mining company out there. And three months old, he shipped me due east with my family, mum and my sister, to a little town called Townsville. So that's basically where I grew up from 1955 to 1969. And, and I had a phenomenal childhood upbringing because basically I, I lived on the beach. Uh, my mum and dad had a house and when you just walked across the road, walked across the park, and there I had a beautiful beach and expanse of the Great Barrier Reef, which is, again, a few miles offshore on an island, or just near an island called Magnetic Island. Um, and right there, in that moment, I started to understand the Great Barrier Reef. I experienced sharks, I experienced box jelly uh, fish that would really hurt you. I experienced the snorkeling and spear fishing. And then eventually I morphed out into scuba diving as I got bigger and stronger. Um, so my, my entire upbringing in Townsville was 75% the Great Barrier Reef, 75% the water, 75% surfing. And then the other 25%, I went into the outback to where I used to disappear into the outback of Queensland with my friends on camping trips. And we'd go for two weeks to two and a half weeks just camping and experience the wildlife like crocodiles and wild horses and our wild pig population and our fantastic barramundi fishing and our ginormous mud crabs that we used to go catch in a, in a crab pot. And uh, it was just a 
an incredible experience for me growing up because I had many, many, many different touch points that allowed me to fall in love with my country. While Norman played many sports, he developed a passion for individual sports fairly quickly. Golf, however, wasn't one of them. Everything I did in life, uh, in sport, I should say, was team-orientated. I played a lot of cricket. I played a lot of rugby league and rugby union. I played, my eventual favourite of all my sports in Australia was Australian rules football, Aussie rules. And it wasn't until I really started uh, developing my individual skills at surfing that I was actually getting into an individual sport. Mano a mano, you on a board and the board against Mother Nature. And during that time, and I'm, I, I, I stand firmly on this, my experiences as a surfer taught me a lot and, and trained my body into certain things that actually applied beautifully to the game of golf. It was one of those things I didn't realize until after the fact about incredible core strength, great um, knowledge of proprioception where your body is, that board moves around, the stability, looking out in front, focusing on things and just making sure your body is in the right place and space at the time as you drop in. So golf came with the surfing as an individual sport. As I got into golf, I loved the individual aspect of golf. I loved the fact that you got out of it what you put into it. If you're happy just being status quo with a handicap of 10 or a handicap of scratch or happy being the 30th best player in the world, fine with that. That was great. But in golf, I learned to teach myself to push, to get better, to get better, to get better, and to seek what you had within you that you didn't even know you had. So I love that aspect of finding the inner self in me um, that only golf could pull out. So the harder I worked at it, the more I enjoyed it. The more I enjoyed it, the better I became. Norman's surfing experience may have proved invaluable, but it wasn't until early 1970, aged 15, that Norman first became associated with the game of golf due to a move away from Mount Isa. I was very lucky, actually. Um, I first went out and caddy for my mother. When my father moved from Townsville, the little town up in northeast Queensland, down to Brisbane, which was really the capital of our home state of Queensland. And uh, during that uh, move, I left all my friends in Townsville. I left my team members. I left the, the beach of Townsville. I left the Great Barrier Reef. And so when I came down to Brisbane... I didn't have anything to go to. I didn't have too many friends or didn't have any friends in general. And, and it was about, I was just about my 16th birthday. And my mother was going out to play golf at Virginia Golf Club and I decided to go caddy for her. I figured, uh, you know, I'd see what the game of golf was all about. Little did I know that it would just bite me like a, it was such enthusiasm and, and, and commitment. I never expected that. So anyway, when my mother finished playing, I decided to take her golf clubs and play the last four holes at Virginia Golf Club, out, back, out, and back. And I was hooked. I was given a 27 handicap. Um, my first official score was 108. And from there, in 18 months, I got down to scratch. And um, not so long after that, in a period of less than five years, I actually won my first professional golf event, which was the Westlakes Classic 
in Adelaide in um, November of 1976. With incredible rapidity, Norman had moved from having never picked up a golf club to being a professional winner on the PGA Tour of Australasia. All along, a dream of winning the Open Championship was at the forefront of a young Norman's mind, with support from his mother. My mother was a very good player. Uh, she's won numerous club championships, and um, as I was improving at this dramatic rate, I said to her, look, Mum, the British Open is a tournament I want to win because it is the Open Championship. It's open to all the amateurs. You can go pre-qualify if you want to. But I promised it to my mum. I said, look, if I ever win this, with this, win this championship, the trophy's going to be yours. Because without my mum, I would never have started. I would never have been in the position because she really introduced me to the game of golf. Uh, she knew I was a very determined individual anyway. She knew when I put my mind to it, um, I put my mind to it and I executed to the best I could possibly do. Uh, maybe not schoolwork, <laughs> I might say that, maybe not there, but in sport I did. And uh, I was very, very passionate about my goals and I was very goal-orientated, goal-setting individual. Uh, so she knew that um, once I put my head into that game, um, that there was a good chance that that was going to happen. In 1977, now a European Tour winner, Norman qualified for his first Open Championship, the 106th Open held for the first time at Turnbury. But privileged, I feel, to have seen one of the greatest of all time, and that was the 1977 Open Championship at Turnbury. It was the first time a championship of that nature, or indeed the championship, had gone to this particular venue. And what a battle it turned out to be between the mighty Jack Nicklaus and Tom Watson. Well, my first experience at a major championship, 1977, Turnbury. And, you know, you, you, I've watched the British Open on TV and you watch the Tom Watsons and the Raymond Floyds and the Jack Nicklauses and the and, uh, Lee Trevinos of the world. And, and you go, wow, you know, and I, I'll never forget walking there and I'll never forget how the RNA set it up with the bleachers around the 18th hole and I'll never forget the golf course, the way it looked, the feel. It was everything totally different than what I had experienced playing in Australia and Japan and a little bit of Europe. So, uh, you know, I was kind of awestruck, to tell you the truth, and uh, you look up on a leaderboard or you go on a practice round and you see, oh, there's Jack Nicklaus over there on the fourth fairway. Oh, God. And you you keep watching him. Or there's Lee Trevino on the driving range yabbering away and laughing and chatting and going on. And then you look at the the stoic Tom Watson out there, you know, ignoring everybody. You go, oh, I'm taking it all in, just absorbing what each individual player who was extremely successful at time at the time how they went about their process of getting ready for a major championship so at any way i missed the cut it was the jewel in the sun if my memory is right between jack and tom and they distanced themselves from the field <laughs> what about that then well, I tell you what, if there any nitrates flying about or Romilly degrees, well, this fellow is much deduced one. I've never seen anything like that in my life. This for the championship. Yes, well, well, well. It was absolute drama to the end. I don't think I've seen anything better than that in my life, and neither of you. Absolutely And I was actually... Um, it was a huge inspiration for me because when you, 
when you think you can play and you've won a few tournaments, which I had done uh, leading into that uh, major, for my first major, you think you're okay, you think you can play. But I tell you what, reality checks hit you square in the forehead and says, you got a lot of work to do, son, if you want to get out there and compete with these guys because they are different. They are better than most. They are not status quo players. They move the needle forward in their playability and bringing people, putting bums on the seats in the bleachers at the 18th hole by putting people who turn on the TV sets to watch the British Open or watch any major championship. They are the leaders. And I took a huge amount of energy from that, a huge amount of input because that's what I wanted. Because I would, that kind of suited my DNA a little bit. I always wanted to be take the responsibility on because I wanted the responsibility to be a better person, to be the best I could be. So I embraced that and I convinced myself at the time in, in July of 77, I said to myself, Greg, you've got to pick their brains. Don't be afraid to ask them a question. So you know, even though I missed the cut in 77, I actually won a lot of intelligence and, and uh, understanding about how I need to change things and how I wanted to change things and, and the, the new approach that I was going to take from you know, that moment onwards forward in my life. After 1977, Norman continued to play in Open Championships and win professional events. He recorded his first top 10 in a major in 1979, with a tie for 10th in the Open, and would begin to contend for majors soon after. By the time 1986 rolled around, Greg Norman had claimed 38 professional victories all over the world, and had been given the nickname, The Great White Shark. Heading into the 1986 Open Championship, again held at Turnbury, Norman was now a strong contender for the moniker of best player to have never won a major. Experiencing a playoff loss in the 1984 US Open to Fozzy Zeller, and an agonizing defeat to Jack Nicklaus at the Masters earlier in the year, bogging the final hole from the final group in the final round to lose by one. Norman had intentions of putting that right at the 115th Open Championship. Different moments in time, maybe it was destiny, who knows? It was destiny for Jack to win and me not to win, and destiny for Fuzzy to get up there with a white towel. And so maybe all that, I don't know, sprinkling a little bit of this and that into it, and I didn't win them. So at the end of the day, there were two fantastic champions of the Masters and the US Open and Fuzzy and Jack. Um, so, you know, I wasn't, I've never been a person to cry over spilt milk. I've never been a person to, to fixate on the past. I'm a person that just moves through and, you know, the next thing that happens is going to be the first thing that happens in the rest of my life. So that moment in time, I knew what my job was with the goal of holding up the clarity jug at the end of the day. I never pictured that. It was like, I want to do that. So let's go get that. I walked out on the golf course and looked at the first hole and I went, okay, looks great, looks lush, looks green. And I got to the second and the third holes and they were extremely tight with the driver. And I went, this is perfect for me. 
I said to myself, this is going to be a good championship for you because you love your driver. You're a great driver of the golf ball. So I made my decision on the, on the, after three holes of the practice, first practice round that my driver was going to be my best friend that week. I was going to take it to the golf course. The Open Championship returned today to the Ailsa course at Turnbury, prompting memories of that great duel between Watson and Nicholas on the parched fairways in the heatwave of 1977. Well, today, what a contrast to all that. Everything that the weathermen predicted and the players feared. 40 mile an hour winds, adding to the problems already created by the tight fairways and the deep rough. Yeah, I, re I remember the first round being brutal. It was windy, it was wet. I think I shot four over par. The par was 70, 74. Uh, and there wasn't too many players who shot sub-70s scores at that time. Um, so you knew you were in for a, a long, hard week. And you, you had to throw par out of your head because you knew you were going to make a lot of bogeys. You just had to make the fewest number of bogeys and then sprinkle it in with a couple of birdies there to end up being saying, OK, 72 might be a great score today. Let's go after that. An opening 74 on a difficult day kept the shark in contention. But it was during the second round that Norman would produce one of the finest rounds of golf in his life and one of the finest rounds in the history of the Open Championship. Well, day two, you wake up. I was staying in the Turnberry Hotel. You wake up, you look out, and the, the flags are going up and not down. And you can see the squalls coming across. And um, um, I actually just... Walked down the stairs with my umbrella. I walked over the road and went to the driving range um, with Pete Bender, my caddy, and I just said, hey, Pete, you know, it's going to be a tough day today. You know, we've just got to, you know, stay calm and, and stay in the moment and boom, let's see what happens. Um, so I knew when I put that, you know, ball in the, on the tee on the first hole that I just wanted to make solid contact with that first tee shot. Get off to a solid start, and I did. And I hit the ball solid, and then I hit another one solid, and then I made a couple of birdies, and then all of a sudden, I'm actually so enjoying the moment, it was ridiculous. So too was Greg Norman. That was some consolation for his battling 74 in the gales of yesterday. And Norman started with three birdies and an eagle in his outward nine of 31. Heading into the 14th hole, Norman was already five under par for his day. But things were about to get even better. Up it goes. Good strike. Ooh, he just tiptoed over the bunker. What a nice break that was. Landed on top of the bunker, came down the hill, virtually stone dead. Things are definitely going his way. Now at two under for the championship and in the lead, Norman fired another sparkling approach into the 16th green. Well now, 
Norman, who's had one, two, three, four, five, six birdies and an eagle, so he's had the equivalent of eight birdies so far today. And this for another one. Oh, look at it, he's going to wander away. He's got it, and he's looking very relaxed and very cool. One of the few actually looks like he's enjoying himself today. And why not? And I knew 16 could be a killer for your round. Um, so I was, when I got past 16, I thought, okay, now, now we can really finish this round off. And, and actually, in my mind, I actually thought of shooting 59, believe it or not. Um, I felt that good about my game, and I thought 17-18, the way the conditions were, and the wind, and I could finish 3-3. Three, three. more. A little more, honey. And he gave that the business. Enormous drive, one of the few to creep up on the top, and that's absolutely in the perfect position. The par 5 17th was eaten up by Norman's driving prowess and yielded a chance for Eagle to go to 9-under for his round. While the Eagle would just slip by, a birdie meant that a par at the last would give Norman the Turnberry course record and an all-time record for the lowest round ever recorded in a major championship. Four, a birdie four, he goes to 8-under, a four of the last for 62, which would of course be a course record. After hitting the green, two pots would secure a 62. And boldly onto the green. Quite a long way from the hole. But, uh, pretty good. seem to hit it all that hard. Come on now, Gregory. Well, this to make history. This putt for a round of 62. I believe I three-putted the 18th too, so um, you know what? It taught me another lesson, never get ahead of yourself, because it was a really, really a wonderful experience. Well, uh, how sad, really. A 63 is still... Uh, just take your time. 63 it is, an incredible round. But how sad to finish with a three-pack. Three under par for Greg Norman. One, three, five. While the short missed putt on 18 was a disappointment, Norman's record tying 63 on a day where few other players broke par put the Australian into a two-shot lead heading into Saturday. The third day, however, was not such plain sailing, as the weather on the Ayrshire links quickly became biblical. Greg yeah! Norman ends at one over par, 74 today, 211. He still leads the championship, but now only by one. A day then when you had to be a brave man to stay on the leaderboard, and Greg Norman, five shots clear at one point, 
must be quite relieved just to stay in front of the field tonight. He leads by one from Tommy Nakajima. With a one-shot lead heading into the final round over Tommy Nakajima, Norman had a sense of deja vu. The Queenslander had held a one-shot lead heading into the final round of both previous majors that year, but had only managed a tie for second and a tie for twelfth. Excited anxiety crept in for Norman, but reassurance from his fellow professionals helped provide the boost he needed. You can be part of some of golf's most influential fans by joining The One Club for free today. As a member, you'll be the first to secure your place at golf's original major, with priority access to tickets and hospitality at future Open Championships, including the 150th Open at St Andrews next year. Be part of the Open. Be part of the One Club. Join us today at theopen.com. I wasn't scared, but I was excited. Um, I wasn't nervous, but I was anxious. The Saturday night was an interesting one in the Turnberry Hotel because everybody had known what I had done at the Masters and, and the US Open, so they knew I had this opportunity to, and here I am again, leading up to three rounds, uh, three of the four majors of 1986. So they knew I had the, the ability to, to win. And so walking through the, the dining room, it was fascinating to get the support that I was getting from players. Like, hey, you know, you can do it tomorrow and hey, good luck or get a good night's sleep, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's it just a flood of positive energy coming to me. And, you know, even Jack, you know, I was walking out and Jack pulled me aside and he said, you know, just think about your grip pressure. That's all you have to do tomorrow. And I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty cool, you know. And you go, well, that's a true indication of the beauty of our game of golf and to how we approach it. So as I got into my, my room that night, I, I let, put my head down on my pillow and I fell asleep so fast because I was at peace. I had support. I had belief. I had the lead. I loved the golf course. I wasn't going to change my game plan going into Sunday. And, you know, I was prepared to... Whatever was going to happen, I was prepared to take it fully on the chin, good or bad. Um, so when I woke up Sunday morning, I looked out the window and I saw what the weather was like. And, and you know, I said, this is going to be a good day today. And the rest is history. On Sunday, Norman played superbly. A continuation of his impeccable driving and tee to green play helped Norman take a commanding lead after the front nine, thanks to birdies on the third. Oh, beautifully played. <laughs> oh. Well, if he doesn't win today, my Antonelli will become Uncle Charlie. That really is quite extraordinary. And the eighth holds. Close. Just what he's done. There she goes, a birdie three. He's now five ahead, ten holes left. A strong back nine, played like a true champion, yielded a further birdie on the 16th hole. And an approach to the par 5 17th again demonstrated the Australian's superior ball striking. 
The lovely easy swing and the glorious result. Walking up the 18th, wading through the packed crowds, Norman knew he had won. And it was a special feeling. Now, I wonder what he's thinking now. He's waited a long time. Is it going to be a smile hiding a, a misty eye? Just wait for the cheer when he comes actually into the arena and walks onto the green. A new champion. moments to say I just enjoyed it then I actually was so taken back by the fan support, how they, the RNA allowed the fans to come in and rush around you and you had to walk your way through 50, 60 people deep. Um, that was an incredible experience. And it's too bad they don't do it today. I understand. I do understand. But uh, from a player's perspective, there's no better feeling because all these people have been pulling for you all day long and now all of a sudden they get a chance to touch you and just say, hey, well done, Greg, and yell and scream and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just one of those things that is really one of the trophies of your victory is having that moment with your fans where they do actually just love you to death and just love the moment. And it is the Open Championship and boom, there you are. You're walking through and you're hanging on to the BBC cart trying to get through. And and uh, so when you pop on the other side and there you have this you know, artificial amphitheater, you go, Wow. You know, here it is. The final one, hopefully for Greg Norman. Yeah! Yes, well done. He's done it at last. Greg Norman, 69. And great stuff. The champion for 1986. Let's have a look at the leaderboard. Greg Norman, the end winning by five strokes, 69 today, 280, which is exactly level par. It really feels great. Uh, you know, I, was, I played well today. I came out with determination not to let anybody have a chance to win the golf tournament except me. And, um, well, it's most special because uh, outside of Australia, this was the first place that accepted me as a, a professional golfer. And, uh, you know, everybody out here supported me for five years playing the European Tour, and I appreciate it very much. And, to win my first Open in front of everybody, especially the gallery up here in Scotland, it's uh, the greatest feeling ever. Now a major champion and an Open champion with a stunning five-stroke victory at Turnbury, Norman made good on his promise to his mother over 15 years before. I promised it to my mum. I said, look, if I ever win this, with this, win this championship, the trophy's going to be yours. Because without my mom, I would never have started. I would never have been in the position because she really introduced me to the game of golf. So um, I had to give her a little thank you and a little you know, give back. And the claret jug was that when, uh, when I won it in, in 86. 
Um, the first person who put their hands on it when I got back to Australia was my mother. She, we have you know, photographs even to this day of it. I look at and reflect on mum holding it and, and uh, talking about it and the, the moment. And so it was, yeah, it's a, it was a very, very important part of history for her as it, just as much as it was for me. Later that year, in September 1986, Norman would reach world number one for the first time staying there for 110 of the next 111 weeks and for 182 weeks over the subsequent five years. I enjoyed it because I knew what I had done to get there. I'm very loyal and responsible to accepting a certain role. Uh, And because of my skills of on a golf course gave me this position, I had to embrace it. I had to take it on for, for all it was worth. And I hope I did it in the right way. I think I did. Um, I hope I carried the baton of the responsibility of being the number one player in the world correctly. And I hope I handed that baton off to the next person, which was Tiger Woods, in such a fashion that he may have taken and instilled some of what I had done into what he needed to do. I don't know, but I feel that was my responsibility. I took that from Jack Nicklaus. Um, I know I took a lot from Seve, uh, a lot from Nick Fowler, um, you know, a lot from Sandy Lyle, from Freddie Couples, from Ian Woosman, Jose Maria Lathabelle. All these guys that had a little touch of number one over my career, you go, you know, we all gave just as something little, little back because of the responsibility we had by having that number one beside your name. And um, so I, that's what I say. I, I, I'm fairly confident I did it correctly. But while Norman's global dominance continued, his second major title proved ever elusive. This was never more so than during playoff losses at the 1987 Masters Tournament, losing to a memorable chip-in from Larry Mize, and the Open in 1989. On the latter occasion at Royal Troon, a remarkable final round of 64 put the Australian into a playoff from a position of seven strokes behind on the final day. Norman kept his strong play up in extra holes and entered the final hole of the four-hole playoff tied with Mark Algavecchia. But Norman's stirring challenge for a second major again was dashed, this time finding a sandy grave. Um, unlucky, I don't know whether you can use the word unlucky, I didn't, I had never even sniffed that bunker for four tee shots previously, from Thursday to, to the 72nd hole. Um, I thought I could just hit a normal driver, I didn't even try and overpower the drive. Normally I could hit a normal driver and I would come within 20 yards of that bunker. Greg Norman. the drive I thought it was perfect. I heard Peter Alice saying it because of speakers going down the 18th hole on TV. You could hear Peter Alice saying, uh, I can't remember, I'm going to paraphrase this, but you know, Norman's ball ended up in the bunker and I go, my ball ended up in the bunker? <laughs> oh, I said, nah, he's wrong. So by the time I got down there, yeah, I could see, you know, so it was, uh, 
Yeah, I was shocked that the ball did go that far. Was it unlucky? That's Link's golf. Tough defeats had proven difficult to swallow, and though in very relative terms, Norman suffered a slump in form for the first time in his golfing career, going through nearly two winless years worldwide from mid-1990 to late 1992. Look, it was very humbling, to say the least, and um, you know, when you're out on the end of a branch, you think you're the only one who's ever been through it. Um, you don't think anybody can give you advice. You, you keep fighting the gremlins in your head, whatever those gremlins are telling you. And you doubt yourself. There's no question. And I remember having a conversation with Jack Nicholas, And he told me about his slump that he went through. And you go, wow, you know, if Jack went through it, what's the big deal? So after I spoke to Jack about his slump, um, I was driving to Old Marsh Golf Club, where I was a member and practicing. And I had a convertible at the time. And I was going down Hood Road. And I pulled over about maybe half a mile before the golf club entrance. I pulled over and I put the roof down. And I lay back in my chair and I watched the clouds go by. And it put me in this really relaxed state And I didn't think about anything else but these white puffy clouds floating from east to west. And I said to my, the only question I said to myself, what do you want to achieve by driving in through those gates of Old Marsh Golf Club? What do you want to achieve? And I answered the question as I looked at the clouds. And I said, I want to get myself back to where I was. A lot easier said than done. But it was in that epiphany of a moment um, that allowed me to find it for myself. So after a period of what I, again, I thought it was 20 minutes, but it was probably only two or three minutes. I put my seat up, turned the ignition on. I lifted myself up in my chair. I lifted my chin up. And I said, I am going to drive forward now. And that was it. And took me a while to get my confidence back with my game. But I unlocked the, I put the key in the door that unlocked this complex door of negativity. And boom, there it is. I rocked myself up to, um, I believe, the Canadian Open at Glen Abbey, and I, I win the Canadian Open. I think I beat Jack, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Thanks to the hard work that had initially helped him get to world number one, Norman found himself in good form heading into the 122nd Open Championship at Royal St. George's. And he even found the course slowly growing to his liking. I'd been working extremely well uh, going into the 93 Open with Butch Harmon. So when I got to Royal St. George's, I was actually in a pretty good place. Um, I felt my golf swing was totally under control. 
I never was a big fan of Ross and George's, I gotta tell you that. Um, and whenever I played there, when the Open wasn't there, it was a weird place to play because there were so many blind tee shots and you had to know where the bunkers were and you had to know a certain line. Um, so I really wasn't a big fan of the golf course. I remember playing practice rounds with Andy Bean and and uh, we were talking about the golf course and we are talking about the approach and now all of a sudden you have bleachers and you have TV towers behind it and you go, okay, now my aim point's here. Now I've got something to shoot at. Now I've got confidence to set up there and then all of a sudden the practice rounds, I'm hitting my spots, I'm hitting where my drive should go, I'm, I'm actually not really seeing all the trouble. And all of a sudden, my confidence in the golf course and my liking the golf course grew a little bit more, a little bit more. And, and uh, so you know, by the time the Thursday rolled around, I was ready to go. The final day of the 122nd Open Championship would pit two of Lynx Golf's finest against each other in a wide-open battle for glory. But a pivotal moment occurred for Norman during the first round. The Great White Shark double bogeyed his first hole of the championship and reached the par 5 14th at level par for his day. From there, a remarkable finish would ensue, starting with a very scrappy birdie. Uh, this was Greg Norman's fourth shot. He's been left twice and right once, hits it up in the air, just watch this now, rattling on. Just, just a birdie, aren't we supposed to birdie the odd one? Well, I'm ashamed, really. It's a shame, really, but I'll take it. On the 15th, a marvellous approach set up another birdie chance. Greg Norman second. Not even better. Yeah, Greg Norman, he really, uh, he's got a very good attitude this week. He's in a relaxed mood. He's enjoying himself. Well, he did it the hard way at 14, but this time the easy way. And that was followed by another long putt for birdie on 16. On the green at the 16th, he's had three consecutive birdies. Has he had a fourth consecutive birdie? Well, there you are. He's really turning on the magic now. Another stunning approach shot on the 17th would yield his fifth consecutive birdie. All this before a long putt for power on the final hole represented a chance to shoot 66. Superb putt to finish. That par coming after five consecutive birdies and a round of 66 for Greg Norman, a share of the lead at four under par. A 68 would follow in round two, and 69 on the third day ensured Norman would begin the final round at seven under par, just a shot behind overnight leaders Nick Faldo and Corey Pavin. The anticipation for the final round was immense, as the rivalry of Faldo and Norman would be renewed once more. Three years prior at St Andrews, the pair competed in the third round in the final group of the 119th Open, with Faldo emerging the clear winner on the day and eventually on the week. Faldo would also later get the better of Norman in infamous fashion at the 1996 Masters, and in their careers the pair exchanged six 1-2 finishes in tournaments, twice apiece taking the world number one ranking off the other. But in 1993, in the final round at Royal St. George's, 
Norman was determined to get the best of his rival. Well, the rivalry was real. You know, Nick and I were two totally different personalities. Um, my approach to playing the game of golf was the antithesis of Nick Vallow's approach to play the game of golf. But we were there week in, week out. We were competing each other on the world stage. Um, and, but we were never really friends. Um, one of the, the disappointing things in life was, you know, Nick was so into Nick on the golf, golf course that he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't talk to you. But the silence was, you know, obvious. And I kind of, I never really got that, to tell you the truth, because I'm, you know, I actually like to see other people hit good shots. I like to see somebody make a birdie or an eagle or chip in. If they do, I'm going to go, hey, great shot. That was my DNA anyway. Uh, but Nick was never that way. He was just wanted to do his deal. And so we did have a great rivalry. And look, with Nick and I, whenever we got on the tee, you know, we, we, were going, we wanted to beat each other. There was no question about it. No different than anybody else, but, you know, it was just this true rivalry that I liked, I enjoyed. I, I, I wanted to have it. You'd be on the driving range and I'd be over here and nay a word be said and let's go play the next 18 holes and see what happens. And here at Royal St George's this afternoon, all the ingredients are there again, including Faldo, tied for the lead with Corey Pavin, a shot clear of Greg Norman and Bernhard Langer. So we're set for an afternoon that could stretch the nerves once again. You know, I definitely would like to win it, no question about it. Uh, come close enough and uh, we'd like to, like to double my tally anyway. In his quest, he got off to a wonderful start. I have a feeling that Greg Norman will not spare himself today. He's going all out for victory. And that, provided he doesn't kick to the right, is very, very long indeed. Just a, a wedge for Greg Norman. Going for it now. Is he going to get a friendly bounce? He certainly is. That's a very good opening shot. And beware all who are watching. Greg Norman at the first. For his Remember his 64 in the last round of turn. A birdie at the first was quickly followed by a second birdie at the third. Oh, he has done it. I tell you, when he gets on rolls like this, we all have seen what can happen, so he's now leading. The first time, I think, in this championship, nine under par, two under after three. Pars would follow on four and five before Norman teed up on the maiden at par three sixth. Water swing. Oh. And for the moment, at least, he's enjoying it. It's a very exciting hole, the sixth to play. Huge crowds on the maiden. Norman at the six now. Get it! Leads by two. What a start he's made. 3 4 2, 4 4 2. Three birdies in the first six holes. 
Norman took two putts from the Dell to the left of the par 5 seventh and had to settle for a par. But the Australian was not to be stopped. A par on the eighth was followed by a moment of magic on the ninth. Norman would pick up another shot on the 12th to get to 5 under par for his day and 12 under par for the championship. He momentarily took a 3-shot lead. But as Faldo birdied the 11th hole, the back nine battle that the fans had been waiting for had emerged. Another look at Faldo's shot. This thin to get to 10. This is absolutely great stuff. There is a very, very tough man as this man is. Greg Norman drives at the 13th. Another beautiful pitch on the 14th yielded a further birdie and Norman maintained a two-stroke lead over the determined Faldo behind. that he looks so relaxed, Mark McCormick was saying this morning, he'd he never, he, never seen him look so relaxed. A few split ends, but he looks relaxed. Now, this has to be a fighting pack from Fowler if he's to have any chance. It's for a par four, and he's got it. And that's the courage of the man showing through. The shark continued to press forward, firing in a stunning shot to the 16th hole. It's that three-quarter swing again. Looking quite anxiously as you would under such circumstances, but Rudy, that could be a winner. That could be a championship winning shot from Greg Norman at the 16th hole. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it and Greg Norman because if he could get 
if you could finish with a three and a four, you'd do a 62, which is quite extraordinary. Quickly back to the 15th, Nick Faldo. Opportunity here for a three is to go to 12 under and still very much in it. Get it! He just didn't give it enough. The unforgivable sin for him at this stage was to be shot. But despite Norman's peerless brilliance, the demons of his past in majors threatened to rear their ugly head once more. Oh, marvellous. 14 under Barry, two pars from here. Or in fact, a five and a four, and he'll break the Open Championship record for four rounds. Norman first. This is quite uh, sharply downhill, but a break from right to left. Two putts will do. Get in the hole! First time, he's thinking all he has to do is not make any mistakes because he's been aggression itself up to him. He faced a putt for par, no longer than one foot in length on the 17th. And in fact, so that Langer doesn't tread on his line, Norman's going to go first. It's uh, not a problem in any shape or form, it's the common courtesies. to amaze us. He should still have enough shots in hand. Two now. They're not going to have a repeat of last year with Cook missing from, it must be said, greater range than that. That could barely have been more than a foot. And perhaps a lapse in concentration. I don't think it was it was nerves, it was just lapse of concentration, born about with all the fiddling around as to who to putt first. He shot that amazing round at Turnbury on his way to victory. He was the third round. He still managed to three-putt from the last green. But it certainly keeps the championship alive. What sort of a fright did you give yourself at 17? Well, actually, matter of fact, I, I, it was probably the best thing that happened to me, Steve, because um, I got a little bit lackadaisical. I knew I had a three-shot lead with one hole to go, thinking I was going to make that little putt, and uh, I think I needed it. You know, that was, I think uh, you need a little spur sometimes, and, uh, you know, it was a tough week, and uh, making one mistake out of the whole 72 holes is not too bad. But Norman bounced back, leaning on one of the greatest strengths any golfer has ever possessed, his driving. Let's have a look at Greg Norman's drive here. You see how he just hovers the club above the ground, doesn't ground it. And watch how short the backswing is, but you can see in his strength and his grip of his face. Look at the left wrist there, how beautifully straight it is. A straight line along his forearm, no open face on this one. It's a much more compact swing. That's as far back as it's going to go. And now he drives through, transfers his way. Still the old trace of the sliding right foot. He'll have that for all of his life. And then that so look at the shaft hitting him on the spine. He certainly didn't spare it. And that's his attitude because too many times he's played quiet shots at 18 holes and, and paid a price. This time he hit it ever so hard. And to think that I started that tournament off as it with a double bogey on my very first hole to turning around to walking down the 18th, you know, with Bernard Langer just, just complimenting me. 
you know, beautifully about the way I played. You know, walking down 18, just you go, wow, what a, what a four days I've just been through. so many disappointments. in par in the end would be enough for a stunning round of 64, his second such final round at the Open in the past four years. It's going to be yours in a minute, my son. As Faldo could not make up any more ground, Norman had bested his rival and had claimed his second claret jug with a two-stroke victory. So at the end of the day, you, you hoist the trophy and, you know, you go, I, I did my job getting, getting back. And the champion golfer for the year with a score of 267, Greg Norman. After the Open in 1993, Norman again reached the pinnacle of the game. This time staying at world number one for nearly two years. By the time his last reign ended in January of 1998, he had spent an incredible 331 weeks as world number one, the second longest amount of time behind only Tiger Woods' 683 weeks in the top spot. From the ranking's inception in 1986 through to 1997, Norman finished every year inside the world's top five and was the world number one at year-end on seven occasions. Yet while Norman's golfing career wound down in the late 1990s and his focus shifted from golf towards business, there was still one more fairy tale moment to come. Heading into the Open in 2008, Norman had all but retired from the game, having not played an Open or any other major since 2005. But two opening rounds of 70 in the 137th Open at Royal Birkdale raised eyebrows. And at 53 years of age, the Queenslander was raising hopes that something special could happen at golf's original major. (laughs) 
silly game. My situation when I went to Royal Birkdale, when I saw the weather conditions for the rest of the week, which was going to be tough, adverse conditions, I thought, oh, God, I love these conditions, right? I knew you could eliminate a lot of players because the, you know a lot of players don't have some of the shot-making skills that, that you think you need to have to play consistently for five or six or seven straight days in heavy, adverse conditions. And then on top of that, when I played my first practice round, I went, wow, this is the best I've ever seen the RNA set up a championship golf course. So all of a sudden, more positive energy came in my head. I'm liking the conditions. So I actually stuck to my game plan. I said to myself on the Wednesday, I said, I'm going to play this way the rest of the week. You know, pretty much eliminate the yardage book. And as the week went by, you know, my confidence and my approach to the way I was playing the golf course just built and built and built. And so you really forget about your age. You forget about, you don't even read the newspapers. You just say to yourself, wow, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. And, and I simply remember saying, this should, you know, observing this, and little did I know what Tom Watson was going to do the next year, I made the comment, every young child at the age of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, thinking about wanting to become a professional golfer, should sit back and realize they have 40 years ahead that you still have the ability and the chance to win a major championship. Using the creativity and feel that helped him get into the final group on Saturday, Norman continued to play wonderful shots against the strong winds at Birkdale in round three. An approach on the par four fifth was the perfect example. I'm hitting shots from 108 yards with a five iron, and everybody's looking at me like, what is he doing, you know? And, and people, you know, I can hear them talking to their caddies because they're trying to hit nine iron and pitching wedges up into the air, and I'm just like, little bump, chip run shots. Guys, you're not gonna believe this. Greg Norman's got 121 yards left. He's got a five iron. That's how tough it is out here. K. Choi Choi just hit a six iron as good as he could. Great-looking shot that was. <laughs> I love it. It's like a little chip shot from 121 yards. Another birdie would follow on the 17th hole, before a wonderful chip on the 18th would close off a round of 72. Howling wins, Norman ended the day at two over par for the championship and with a two-shot lead. Playing the final round with Padraig Harrington, Norman was aiming to become the oldest ever winner of an Open championship. A poor start, however, yielded the lead to Harrington early on. This to save par. No, it's not happening for Greg. Three bogeys to start. 
It's a poor start. Harrington's had a strong one. And while Norman still held the lead, heading into the back nine, a wonderful charge from Harrington pulled him away from the shark. At the end of play, Norman finished the 137th Open in a tie for third. Six shots behind eventual victor Harrington. Anyway, it didn't happen, and Podrick went off, and Fanov played phenomenal golf. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the shot he hit into the 17th hole. I mean, it was incredible forward. Danger up there up. on the right, Pete. Yeah, but it's also danger on the left if you go far enough left. It's on that bank. Um, but, it, you know, putting on 16, I still thought I had a chance to win, which was which a great feeling to have with two holes to go. Now 66 years of age, Norman last competed in the Open in 2009, and his business ventures have proved successful and fulfilling as he has moved away from competitive golf. Throughout his golfing career, with over a decade spent at the top of the game, Norman was a dominant figure. A player capable of producing golf most could only dream about, the Shark is considered one of the greatest drivers of the golf ball in history and worked as hard as he could to achieve what he set out to do as a youngster. He also, however, had his fair share of disappointment. My personality was to go after it, attack life, be aggressive and um, you know, take no prisoners, quite honestly. Um, Jack was a little bit more conservative. Uh, even though he could overpower a golf course because he was a massively powerful player and a long, one of the longest drivers at the time, um, he would be a little bit more calculating on where he put the ball on the green. And obviously that's why he's got 18 major championships too. Um, if we can go back and if I could go back and change it, maybe that would be one approach that I would change to the game of golf and how I played. But at the same time... Um, You know, I've won 91 times and, you know, yes, only two major championships. Um, If I instill that advice from Jack, I probably wouldn't know how to instill it, to tell you the truth, unless Jack was with me all the time, unless I had somebody who was experienced and skilled in that mindset to train me, to teach me to be that way. Maybe. If that's the case, then, you know, things could have been different, but... It wasn't. I didn't. And at the end of the day, you know, my career is my career, and I've had a pretty darn good one, to tell you the truth. Did I ever have the, the vision and the dream or the, even the wherewithal of saying that one day you're going to be the number one player in the world and, and you're going to have achieved all this? I would have said, heck no. <laughs> There's no way I would, would ever have sat back and reflected that. So um, I achieved and got everything out of my life and my career that I pushed myself to get. Could that, could that have been more because of having other outside influences to help me navigate my way through that? The answer could be yes. So, in an honest fashion, I think I achieved everything that I was meant to achieve. Yet, while various defeats at the Masters and around the globe are often recalled in the world of golf, Norman's victories in golf's original major stand tallest. Two wonderful Open Championship victories, 
as well as a close call at the age of 53 for a third, will always be part of Norman's repertoire. With 88 professional wins around the world, there is no doubt that one of golf's greatest ever talents fulfilled his destiny in golf and in the Open Championship. Well, you know, first of all, it's the sexiest trophy in sport, number one, right? It's got beautiful shape, it's got, you know, just the right size, it, it's got the history, it, it's got the names on there. Um, so when you look at it physically, you want to say, I want to have that. Because it is a beautiful trophy, number one. And now you throw in the meaning of the title, the open champion for whatever year you win, now you take this thing and you go, Ooh, this really does reflect the history and what you have achieved for that week in July. So this championship, this trophy is, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the holy grail of golf. And like anybody in any other trophy, but the one who gets to this one, you've won the open championship. And this is really the global open. It takes a lot of work and a lot of physical work, mental work, a lot of dedication, commitment, sacrifice, application, and everybody who watches TV has that a chance of being an Open Champion. And it's a beautiful story to be told through the Open Championship, through any of the major championships, through success in life. And I encourage every young child to embrace the Open Championship and embrace sport and say, I can do that. with thanks to Greg Norman. Narrated by me, Shane O'Donoghue. Written, produced and edited by Chris Lewis. Executive produced by Paul Sutcliffe. As well as live leaderboards, tea times, video and radio during the Open Championship, you can enjoy historical and new content every day of the year with the Open app. Download for free on iPhone or Android. This has been an original audio production from The Open.